Welcome to the latest message in our Words for Life podcast, which highlights the teaching ministry of Liberty Heights Church. Today's message is the first message in a brand new series called Stronger, where the challenge to our church family is not to grow bigger as a church in 2024, but rather to grow stronger. In today's sermon, we will address the fact that the strength of a church corporately is directly connected to the spiritual efforts of people individually. Join Pastor Brad Cunningham as we turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 5 for a message titled, Everyone Pursuing the Spirit-Filled Life. Well, it is a, I thought it might be uh, the first Sunday of the new year to kick it off by breaking forth in song. If you like to talk to Tomato, yeah, so so, some of you uh, are like, I know exactly what that song is, and you joined right in. Some of you are like, I don't know what's happening, but I think Pastor Brown on the way here might have been hitting a crack pipe, right? Like, I don't know what that was. So listen, if you don't know what that is, that is clearly uh, one of those popular songs ever from the series known as Veggie Tales. Veggie Tales debuted, which this sounds surreal to say, Veggie Tales debuted in 1993. Uh, and within five years, VeggieTales was the best-selling Christian children's product in the world and the most successful direct-to-video series in history. But it all came crashing down. I've not read it yet, but the creator of VeggieTales, Phil Vischer, uh, even wrote a book about the whole experience, about the rise and fall of VeggieTales, and the title of that book was called Me, Myself, and Bob. I've been fascinated over the last couple of years as Phil Vischer has been granting interviews and uh, just sharing the story of VeggieTales and the rise and fall of VeggieTales and how transparent he's been and and what the colossal failure was of VeggieTales. And uh, listen to this excerpt from one uh, interview he granted to K-Love Radio. Vischer said this, he said, I was building and spending, I ended up spending myself right into bankruptcy. He said, I lost the company, even lost the rights to the characters. Uh, Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber. He said, I lost the company because Phil thought that God wanted him to be Walt Disney, but God just wanted me to be Phil. Another interview, he said this. He said, I bought into the evangelical lie that bigger is always better. There is a real tension for every Christian organization to grow. We want to see as many people as we can hear the gospel and come to know Jesus Christ. And we never be content that we've got this many people coming and, and so put out, you know, we have no more vacancies when there's still people who are far from God who need to be reached with the gospel. We want to uh, never be content and get the gospel out uh, with urgency. So that's one tension. But when growth becomes the goal for the sake of growth, then often the casualty is faithfulness. And so there's always this tension that we're navigating. So when we think about a new year at Liberty Heights Church, we had a record year last year in, in all kinds of categories. We're grateful to God for his provision. He deserves all the credit for that. But when we think about this new year, let me just say this openly, and all of our pastors agree with this, uh, our goal for the new year is not to get bigger. That's not our goal. Our goal for the new year, matter of fact, every single year, is to get stronger, that we tend to the depth of our ministry, God will take care of the breadth of it. We lend our efforts to a quality of discipleship, not a quantity of disciples. And so we're going to kick off this new year with a series titled Stronger. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, your devices, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. One of the dangers about talking about the church growing stronger corporately is we can experience a disconnect and 
forget the reality that the church only becomes stronger corporately as we individually take steps to get stronger spiritually. Because we are the church. And so as we grow stronger in our walk with Jesus Christ, as we take steps to increase our spiritual depth and devotion, then the collective overflow will that be Liberty Heights Church will be stronger corporately, but that only happens uh, when you're pursuing that individually. And so uh, the way we uh, think about that and we're going to kick it off this first message in the series is this, is that our church will go stronger corporately when everyone is pursuing the Spirit-filled life. And the call to live a spirit-filled life could not be any clearer than in Ephesians chapter 5. And so let's look together at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15, down through verse 21. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but... Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, if you've been around Liberty Heights for a little while, you know the idea and the principle of the spirit-filled life is something we've taught on before, more than once before, uh, but we decided when our pastors got together and planned out our preaching for the next two years, we said, hey, uh, when we think about getting stronger, let's start off a teaching on the spirit-filled life uh, for two reasons. Number one, we learn by repetition. And number two, uh, we would argue that in many non-charismatic evangelical churches, the uh, function, person, and work, and ministry of the Holy Spirit has often uh, been neglected. And so the reality is this, whatever spiritual goals you have this year, uh, you've got two options to accomplish them. Number one, it's the Spirit-filled life where the Spirit of God is empowering you to do what you could not do and what you would not do left to your own self. Uh, or the other option is this, it's just your own willpower, your own personal discipline, your own willpower. Let me tell you why that's a bad idea. If you've stepped on the scales now that the holidays are over, you found out your willpower is not as good as you hoped it would. Amen? And so the option is this spirit-filled life. According to Ephesians chapter 4, the role of every pastor uh, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so in order to do that uh, this morning, uh, I want to teach on the Spirit-filled life as practically uh, as I can, uh, an effort to equip you as effectively as we possibly can as we start this new year off. And so uh, I want to answer three simple, practical questions this morning as it relates to the idea of the Spirit-filled uh, life. Question number one is, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Question number two is, how do we experience the Spirit-filled life? And then question number three is, what is the evidence or what does it look like to know if, in fact, I am experiencing this spirit-filled life, right? So super practical uh, as we walk through this subject. And so if that sounds like a good way to approach it, would you just say amen? Good. That's what I was going to do anyway. All right? So question one is this, what is the spirit-filled life? And I think this is the starting point for a couple of reasons. Again, there's been so much neglect in non-charismatic churches on the person and work of the Holy Spirit that uh, several years ago, it led Francis Chan to actually write a book called Forgotten God. And the 
book, if you have read it, is all about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He said, hey, in our uh, charismatic churches, the Spirit's often emphasized to the point of excess, unbiblical excess. But in our non-charismatic churches, like we're, we're, we're a little nervous about talking about that, right? Uh, look, can we just be honest? In, in Baptist churches, sometimes when someone says, hey, we need more of the Holy Spirit in our church, uh, we can get a little nervous. Am I right? Like, I mean, we're thinking, well, that's a slippery slope. I mean, uh, what's next? Speaking in tongues and casting out deacons? I mean, is that where we're going with this, right? <laughs> Some of your deacons are like, that's not funny. Listen, I don't care who you are. That's funny. Amen. It's funny. I mean, what, what if, what, what, is this going to lead to dancing? I mean, what, where do we stop, right? Like, where does this thing stop? We're, we're like the guy in my first church one time. He was a baby Christian, and uh, we're teaching the Holy Spirit and some study. And he said, listen, he said, um, I'm new to all this. He said, but I, I like what I'm hearing about the Holy Spirit. He said, but, but can I be honest? When, when people start talking about the Holy Ghost, I get kind of scared, right? Like as if there were two different people, and one's wild, and one's the Baptist version. I don't know. And so, and the other reason that we've often neglected is because not only have we lacked teaching on the personal work of the Holy Spirit, uh, sometimes in our churches, we've also misapplied his work in our lives. See if this sounds familiar. You're talking with someone and, and it's another Christian and, and they would say something along these lines. I've heard this so many times, like, hey, I, I know that you're not gonna agree with me, but I want to do fill in the blank. But before you disagree with me, I just want you to know, I've prayed about it and the Holy Spirit has led me to do this. And so therefore, at that point, if you're arguing with them or disagreeing with them, you're actually disagreeing with God and who wants to do that, right? And so, uh, oftentimes, uh, we've just neglected uh, the Spirit. So we felt like, hey, this is a good starting point because there's a neglect of teaching or a misapplication of the Spirit's work and ministry. So the second reason uh, we want to nail this down is because uh, grammatically, the structure of verse 18 uh, is this is a, a command. Look at verse 18, uh, what he says. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm going to let you in a little secret. It's a new year, so, so here's a little uh, new, new truth, right? I don't know if you know this or not. Did you know there's disagreement among Christians about the use of alcohol? Are you aware of that? Right? And, and so, but what there should be no disagreement about is the Bible is openly condemns drunkenness. Openly condemns uh, drunkenness. Uh, I would argue that drunkenness is hard to define, uh, but according to the context of this passage, when it's contrasting being controlled at some level by the Holy Spirit, I would argue that contextually that means drunkenness means I'm controlled at some level by alcohol. So whether I'm controlled a little bit, I just feel a little freer, or I'm taking refuge because I had a hard day, or I'm falling down drunk, anytime it's controlling me, that's a measure of drunkenness, and the Scripture says you, you should avoid that. And the reason I would argue that is because that's the context of this passage. You say, hey, don't let alcohol, or anything for that matter, don't let alcohol control your behavior in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but in contrast, the Holy Spirit should be the one controlling your behavior. And so what he means by that, this spirit-filled life, another way to say it's a spirit-controlled life, it, it is a moment by moment reality, where we're living under the control of the Holy Spirit, both in our outer man actions and in our inner man affections. And the grammatical structure of verse 18, be filled, is not a suggestion. He's not saying, hey, as you plan out your spiritual goals for a new year, here's something I would offer up for consideration, this idea that you would be 
Uh, consider being filled with the Spirit as you live this Christian life. He said, no, this is a form of a command. It's not a suggestion. And so if God commands us to live a certain way, I think it should be helpful to understand clearly what he's asking and expecting us to do. And if you're like me, sometimes when someone's trying to explain something to me and I, and I can't understand whatever it is they're explaining, sometimes I'm helped by understanding what it's not. Because once I understand what it's not, I have a clear picture of what something is. So when it comes to the spirit-filled life, let me tell you two things it is not. Number one, it's not an experience. Uh, this is where I would part ways with some of our uh, charismatic friends. This would uh, include uh, but not be limited to things like uh, speaking in tongues and ecstatic, uh, unintelligible uh, utterances, uh, slaying the spirit. Have you ever seen that video clip where Benny Hinn throws the Holy Spirit behind his back like Magic Johnson? Not the spirit-filled life, all right? Barking like dogs, laughing hysterically, people going into trance-like states, all right? So listen, if you're listening, say Amen. Emotional experiences do not transform your character. Emotional experiences last about as long as until you get to the parking lot. They do not transform uh, your character. If you get goosebumps in a worship service, you're like, oh, I just feel like I, uh, there's a fresh feeling uh, of the spirit. But yet you get in the car and you're screaming at your kids and you're rude to the wait staff when you get there. Listen, uh, that, you didn't experience the feeling of the spirit. It's probably Taco Bell from last night, all right? I would hold to the position that sign gifts were used in the New Testament, like speaking in tongues, uh, in the New Testament during the time of the apostles to give credibility to their message uh, to evangelize unbelieving Jews. But even those who disagree and say, hey, I think the sign gifts are continually operating, even those people would agree that these sign gifts, like speaking in tongues or those kind of things, uh, it was not even normative in the New Testament. That these were unique experiences that God supernaturally did these things, uh, I would argue, to validate the message to unbelieving Jews who could not imagine that God wanted a covenant relationship with anyone that them. But even people who say, I, I think the gifts are still in operation, even they would agree this was not normative in the New Testament. So this idea that the normative experience of the Spirit-filled life is these emotional, supernatural kind of things. Listen, that's not even consistent with the storyline of the Gospels in the book of Acts. In the context of Ephesians 5, Paul's not writing about experiences. Paul's writing about moving towards ongoing spiritual maturity that's not displayed in these one-off experiences that's actually displayed uh, in the normal, everyday relationships that you have. So in uh, chapter 5, verse 18, he says, hey, be filled with the Spirit. And then he gives some evidence of a Spirit-filled life. We'll look at verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. And then he says, hey, when you're really Spirit-filled, it, it, it won't just be these experiences. It'll govern your everyday relationships. Husband and wives, at the end of verse 5, Parents and children, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Employee and employer, Ephesians 5, uh, 5 through 9. 6, 5 through 9. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Life in the Spirit, states, The spirit-filled life is not a critical experience. This is a state or a condition in which we're to live always permanently. And experience is temporary. He said this is a permanent state for the believer. He says because Paul commands it, we're not to be passive as we wait for some experience. Rather, it is something that we must obey. The present tense of the verb indicates an ongoing condition so that the person may be characterized as full of the Holy Spirit. So number one, spirit-filled life, 
It's not about an experience. It's a way to live. It's not an experience. Uh, the second thing it's not is it's not the same as the baptism of the Spirit. Now, if you've got your big boy pants on, would you just kind of raise your hand up real high? If your hand's not raised, I just assume you got, don't have pants on, so just stay seated, all right? I'm going to go into a little Old Covenant, New Covenant theology to help us understand, because the Bible does talk about and illustrate the baptism of the Spirit, and that's a real thing, and so how do we understand uh, what that is? And so, uh, in the Old Covenant, uh, you would have the baptism of the Spirit, but uh, on the ascension of Jesus, remember Jesus turns to the disciples and says, hey guys, I'm leaving, and they're like, that's a terrible idea. We're just getting started. That's a terrible idea. He says, don't worry, because I'm sending one after me, right? And it's the Holy Spirit who, at that point in time, at the ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is sent and now indwells uh, believers. And so, uh, when you think about this, in the Old Testament, uh, God's presence uh, wasn't indwelling believers. God's presence uh, was, was kind of a, a temporary. The, the, we see in the Garden of Eden that, that the Spirit of God is, is walking with them in the garden, right? Uh, then we see this temporary structure called the tabernacle where they would kind of move it around and the, and the presence of God would come and dwell among his people in the tabernacle. And then it was a semi-permanent structure called the temple which got destroyed. But And now that, that God lives in us through the indwelling presence in the new covenant of the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you don't understand the Bible, this is all new to you. Let me, let me sum up the Bible in one sentence for you here. God desires to dwell among his covenant people. That's the storyline of the Bible from creation all the way into redemption in heaven. And the various ways that God accomplished that have changed. And so in the uh, old covenant, uh, which is now obsolete according to Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13, now that Christ came in the old covenant, the spirit of God did not indwell men, but instead would come upon them to empower them for works of service. That's why Moses prayed. God, take not your spirit from me. I had someone read that one time and say, man, does that mean that God could take the spirit from me? Because I think Moses is probably a pretty holy guy. And, and so surely if he could do that to Moses, he could do that to me. I said, no, no, old covenant, let's talk about new covenant, uh, those kind of things. And so, uh, but scripture says this, the reality is now in the new covenant, we don't have to build a place for God to dwell. Why? Because God dwells in us in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, this room is not the sanctuary. The sanctuary of God is inside of me. Sanctuary is an old covenant mentality where we build a room and God dwells there. No, God lives in me, praise God, through the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. And so when we think about that, the Spirit-filled life, won't you listen? The Spirit-filled life is not where we get more of the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is where the Spirit gets more of us. He's not coming on layaway plan installments, right? Like you got a little bit when you got saved, like a down payment, and then if you do this, you do that, then all of a sudden you get a little more of the Spirit. No, no, but listen, you've got all the Spirit you need at the point of conversion. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. How are you going to improve on that? And so the spirit-filled life is not where you get more of the spirit. It's where the spirit gets more control of you. Now, there's one exception. I know some are getting nervous because we're still on point one, but you'll get to lunch, I promise, all right? In the baptism of the spirit, you're like, oh, that's old covenant. In the new covenant, spirit of God dwells us, doesn't baptize us externally. There is one exception uh, in the new covenant where it talks about the baptism of the spirit in the new covenant. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 
It says, by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. So what does that mean? At the point of conversion, the spirit of God baptizes us into the body of Christ, and that's a one and done thing, because after that point, I'm indwelled with the Spirit. I don't need the Spirit to come upon me externally, because it dwells in me personally, not it, he. That's the wrong, wrong word. And so, other than that, we are indwelt by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you say, hey, I've kind of read the Bible, and, and I get that, Jesus said, and all that kind of stuff, but, but there was this baptism of the Spirit in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, and chapter 8, and chapter 10. Yes, listen, that was the uh, one-time uh, progression of the gospel to all the nations as the miracle of Pentecost began to spread out. The Jews were baptized in Acts chapter 2 with the baptism of the Spirit, uh, then the Samaritans, Acts chapter 8, and then the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, that was a unique moment uh, in the redemptive history of God's uh, timeline. So the spirit-filled life is this. A person who lives habitually, not perfectly, habitually, consistently lives with every area of his life under the control of the spirit. He is not a self-willed man. He is a spirit-controlled man. Now, if you've been around here, uh, you know we work really hard. We want our teaching to be biblical and practical. And so when I understand all that theology about the Holy Spirit and the covenants and how all that works and what, you know, what the difference is, and uh, the, my next natural questions uh, for me uh, become two, uh, well, how do, how do I experience that life? And then how do, how do I know if I'm experiencing Like, what does that look like if this is actually taking place uh, in my life? So the second question, what answers this, how do we experience the Spirit-filled life? And I think this is important. Because even if we would say, hey, the I think in, in charismatic theology, there's some unbiblical excesses of the Spirit's work and ministry uh, in there. Uh, even if we don't hold to that, if we're honest, it's still the whole idea of a Spirit-filled life, living yielded to the Spirit. If we're honest, it feels a little mystical and not uh, entirely practical. Am I right? Like, I like that concept. That's just kind of mystical. I don't, I don't even know how you get that or how that works. And so what does that practically uh, look like? And so uh, what does it look like? So we offer two things here. Uh, number one, in experiencing the spirit-filled life, number one, we pursue intimacy with Jesus through the spiritual disciplines. It is not the mountaintop spiritual experiences that transform our character into the image of Jesus Christ. And listen, I'm grateful for those. I hope that you can look in the rearview mirror of your, your life and all that Christ has done, and there are some mountaintop experiences, and, and we, we should be grateful to God for those because it reminds us in the, in the valley about the incredible work that God has done, can do, will do, and that should sustain us uh, in the valley. But, but those mountaintop experiences are, are unique. That's why they're experiences. That's not how our, ultimately how our character is transformed. It's just transformed by the everyday ordinary means of grace that we can access in this spirit-filled life through the spiritual disciplines. Did you know this? That grace is not just good for forgiving your past and getting you to home in heaven in the future, that grace works in the present. We've taught over and over, grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. And God unleashes after you're saved and experiencing saving grace, God will unleash in your life his empowering grace, enabling grace, sanctifying grace, whatever term you uh, like, so that you can be transformed to become more like Jesus, not because of your own human willpower, but because the Spirit of God, the grace of God is empowering you to grow and change. 
And the way that you access that enabling or sanctifying grace to become more like Christ and don't have to rely on willpower is the everyday, ordinary spiritual disciplines. Now, I could rattle off all kinds of spiritual disciplines. We talk about solitude and silence and fasting and, and worship. We talk about all kinds of things uh, in their service. But let me just offer up uh, the, the three that I would consider the three foundational spiritual disciplines that, that if you don't have these in your life, you're never going to experience this enabling grace to become more like Jesus. So the three I would offer up, number one, is uh, private prayer, private personal devotion and prayer. That the regular rhythm of our life is that I'm praying without ceasing, that I'm consistently going before Christ in prayer, seeking uh, not just his favor or his provision, but I'm seeking his presence daily through prayer. Right, and prayer is not about so much about changing the mind of God as it is me uh, conforming my will to God's will in prayer. But in prayer, I'm pursuing the presence of Christ daily, regularly as a foundation of my life. So a uh, private, personal prayer and devotion. Uh, the second thing I would offer is faithful corporate worship. Someone asked me a while back, they said, hey, like, we're the only church I know that's bigger than a thousand people that doesn't have a live stream. Like, we, we don't do that on purpose. Why in the world do we not do that on purpose? I said, because I want to make it hard to go to church in your jammies. Amen? Right? And here's why. Because watching corporate worship, I'm not talking about you're sick or people are shut-ins and I'm going to be legalistic. But listen, it's a regular normative practice. Watching corporate worship is not the same as participating in corporate worship. That corporate worship is a foundational spiritual discipline where God unleashes his sanctifying grace so that I become more like Christ and experience the power of the spirit-filled or spirit-controlled life. David Mathis, in our book of the year a few years ago, uh, his book, Habits of Grace, David Mathis made the argument, he said, listen, corporate worship is the foundational, foundational spiritual discipline that we access God's grace. Now I'm going to let you in a little secret. Over the years as a pastor, I've had people say, hey, I don't think you have to go to church to be a Christian. Right? And I say, I don't either. Like, oh, I didn't expect you to say that. I said, no, no, I don't think you have to be, right? And I said, but you know what? I don't have to go home every night and still be married. But it sure would hurt the relationship. I'm coming home tonight, baby. I just want to share that. <laughs> If I didn't come home, would I still be legally united to my wife? Yes. But would we have a radically altered relationship that would suffer? Yes. So is the Christian's relationship to the local church and corporate worship. The third, and I believe this one is foundation. I'm going to teach this a little bit. So private personal prayer, corporate worship. The third is a personal devotion to the word of God. Let me read you what one author wrote regarding the relationship between the word-saturated life and the spirit-filled life. They are inseparable. He says Ephesians 5, 18 is a parallel passage with Colossians 3. So if you went out here today and said, hey, I want to read more about this, uh, this passage, you can read Ephesians 5 and learn some things. You could go over to Colossians 3, you'd see some similar content because these are parallel passages. 
He said both texts are followed by joyful singing, thankfulness to God, and instructions about wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. But in Colossians 3.16, rather than saying be filled with the Spirit like he does in 5.18, he says let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. He says if to be filled with the word is equal in result to being filled with the spirit, then it should be clear that the word-filled Christian is the spirit-filled Christian. As the word of Christ dwells richly in us, controls all of our ways, as we walk in obedience to the word, the spirit of God fills us, dominates, and controls us to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, let me tell you something. The spirit of God is not schizophrenic. What that means is that the Spirit of God will never lead you contrary to the Word of God. I've had people tell me over the years now, Pastor, I know you're going to disagree with me, but I just feel like uh, God is leading me into this relationship uh, with this person, and I know what you're going to say, but I've prayed about it, I feel the Spirit is leading me, and this is the relationship that would honor God. And I say, I just openly disagree. I openly disagree, and here's why. The Spirit of God would never lead you to be in a relationship with someone else's spouse. The Bible has a word for that. It's adultery. So I promise you, the Spirit of God is not leading you. Uh, There may be some urging or nudging going on, but it's not from the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the word-centered life is the spirit-filled life. The spirit of God will never, ever lead you contrary to the word of God. Now, let me just real quick move on. Uh, In this word-saturated life, let me just uh, commend this to you. That's why scripture memory is vital. When you get in a situation where all of a sudden you're, you don't know what to do and your emotions start stirring and and I don't know what to do and, and you can either operate out of your emotions, which is always unwise, or you can say, hey, I do know what to do because I've memorized scripture for this situation. I've hidden God's word in my heart. And so in this moment, that truth is coming to mind. The spirit of God is bringing it to mind. And I don't have to live by my emotions. I can obey the truth of God's word. And when I live surrendered to the word, I'm living the spirit-controlled life. And so one is pursuing the spiritual disciplines to experience the spiritual life. Here's the second one. It's to fight sin. Can I just tell you that even in contemporary church culture, fighting sin is a good idea. Preaching against sin is a good idea. Anybody who says we don't preach against sin or we don't talk about sin in our church because we just love our people. Listen, you don't love your people because if you love your people and you've seen how sin destroyed their lives, you would warn your people about sin. Listen, if you don't preach against sin, uh, you don't, don't, don't tell me you love your people. What you love is being liked. Great Puritan author John Owen said this, you either get busy killing sin because sin is killing you. And so let me take a quick statement here because we're going to address this in just a moment. But you need to understand the opposite of being filled with the Spirit is to grieve the Spirit or to quench the Spirit. And those are not the same things, but the Bible commands us not to do uh, either one of those. So Ephesians chapter 4 says we should not grieve the Spirit of God, whereby which you are sealed unto the day of redemption. So it says don't grieve the Spirit of God. And then later in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, we're told not to quench the Spirit. Not the same thing, but both of them are contrary to living controlled by the Spirit. So what's the difference between Grieving the Spirit and quenching the Spirit. So listen up. We grieve the Spirit by what we do to Him. Actively sinning against Him. 
We quench the Spirit by what we refuse to let Him do through us. We grieve the Spirit by what we do against Him. We quench the Spirit by what we refuse to do, let Him do through us. One writer said this, we grieve the Spirit by doing what He tells us not to do. We quench the Spirit by not doing what He does tell us to do. And so, if you're grieving the Spirit, you're quenching the Spirit, that's the exact opposite of being controlled or filled with the Holy Spirit. So a Spirit-filled life is always fighting against sin. So here's the question I want to know. What does that look like? Like what should my life look like if in fact I'm living this Spirit-filled life? What, what do I look for? What are the evidences in my life of a spirit-filled life. And let me just tell you this real quick before we get into this. Uh, number one, this is not a checklist for you to write down so you can hold up to someone else later. Our pastor preached today on something like, I, you need this. You went, Listen, this is God's word for you because you need this and so do I. All right? So let me give you some evidence of the spirit-filled life. Some of these are just kind of in general from the general counsel of God's word. And then I'm going to give you three right from the text. Verse 19, verse 20, verse 21 uh, this morning. Number one, uh, evidence number one is I'm no longer controlled by my emotions. If a person's filled with the Spirit, then they're controlled by the Spirit. And one of the greatest competitors for being controlled by the Spirit is being controlled by your own emotions. A situation comes up and your emotions start to take over. Whatever it is, anger, anxiety, loss, filled by whatever it is. And in that moment, you've got a choice. You can say, I'm just going to give in to this and be controlled by emotions. Or I know what the Lord would want me to do, and so I don't want to grieve or quench the Spirit. So I'm going to live obediently and live under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because with the Spirit of God inside of me, I don't have to sin. And so when I'm living the Spirit for life, I'm less controlled by my emotions. Listen, mature people live by their commitments and convictions. Immature people live by their emotions. The spirit-filled life is I'm no longer controlled by my emotions. I'm controlled by the spirit. The second uh, attribute or evidence of a spirit-filled life is I'm more like Jesus. One commentary off of the following insight that was fantastic. He said it may be more accurate to say that the Holy Spirit is the agent of the filling and Christ is the content of the filling. In this relationship as a believer is yielded to the Lord and controlled by him, he increasingly manifests the fruit of the Spirit. So how do you know if you're living the Spirit for life, open your Bibles to Galatians 5 and look at the attributes of the fruit singular of the Spirit. And if these are not displayed consistently, not perfectly, but consistently in your life, that's a warning sign saying, hey, your life doesn't look like this and this is the natural overflow of a spirit-filled life, so something is wrong. There's a disconnect happening. And so what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. One of the habits I used to get in, I need to get back into it, uh, I would lay down at night and I would meditate on the fruit of the Spirit and I would ask the Lord to reveal in my life which of these things are not present in my life and, and ask the Lord to bring to mind how I might repent and believe so that I could manifest that to the next day. And so I'm becoming more like Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is present in my life more consistently. Uh, the third evidence of a Spirit-filled life is I'm gaining victory over sinful patterns. 
Listen to Galatians 5.16. Listen, the goal of the Christian life is not obedience, it's intimacy. You've heard us preach that. The goal of the Christian life is not to sin less. That's moralism. That was a religion of the Pharisees. Don't do this. He said, but you're against sin. Yes, but how do we fight sin is the key. And the key is unlocked in Galatians 5.16. Listen to what he says, this cause and effect relationship. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit. That's another way to say live controlled by the Spirit. Okay, here's what he says. Walk by the Spirit and, so there's a cause and effect, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. What does that mean? That means that holiness is the overflow to uh, intimacy with Jesus Christ. That means the goal to not fulfill the lust of the flesh is to walk in the Spirit, to live the Spirit-filled life, and the overflow will be holiness in my life. The late, great Adrian Rogers used to say this, Jesus is the way to holiness. Holiness is not the way to Jesus. And so I'm getting victory over spirit, spiritual or sinful patterns in my life because I'm walking in the Spirit's power, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And then we give you three right here out of the text and we got to hustle. All right, so uh, number one, right out of the text, number one, I like to worship through music. Let me say something. A heart ready to worship is something you bring with you, not something that the team can produce for you. You're like, well, I just, I don't, I don't sing. They chose all the wrong songs. Or you came in with the wrong heart. Well, how, why would I say that? Because the overflow of a spirit-filled life, the command in verse 18, the first evidence of a spirit-filled life, verse 19, is worshiping through music. Look at verse 19. What does it say? That I'm singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Listen, if you've been living the spirit-filled life all week, you come in here on Sunday, I don't care if they get up there and play Yankee Doodle on the kazoo, you're going to break forth in praise, right? I don't care if a dude gets up and sings VeggieTales, you're going to break forth in praise. Evidence number two from the text, I live with an attitude of thankfulness. There's no such thing as being a grump for Jesus. But I've met a couple. I've met some Eeyores in the body of Christ. You know what I'm talking about? Look at verse 20. This is right out of the text. Verse 20 says, spirit for life, verse 18. The evidence is I like to worship, verse 19. The second evidence is in verse 20, which says what? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. I live a life of thanksgiving, not complaining. Evidence number three, this is a big one. I don't always have to have my way. You say you've gone from preaching to meddling. You're welcome. That's what the text says. Look at verse 21, the third evidence of a spiritual life from our text, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I don't have to have my way. I'm, I'm happy to defer and submit to other people as the overflow of a spiritual life that will be in my life. Can you imagine? I'm out of time. I'm gonna say it anyway, all right? Can, can, can you imagine if our country was governed by these principles, what a radical difference we would see. I feel like we're at a tipping point. And I'm not talking about politically. I feel like we're at a tipping point in human decency of how we treat other people. 
People who are made in the image of God who have inherent value and dignity because they're made in the image of God. That's why, anyway. All right, so, listen, can you imagine if everybody pursued this spirit-filled life? Everybody operated with gentleness and deferred to one another and self-control instead of unrestrained anger. I mean, it would change the world. Listen, the hope of the world is Jesus. And so here's the second question I want to ask you. Do you know Jesus? Because only people who know the Son have the indwelling presence of the Spirit. You will never produce this kind of life with your own effort. And if you don't know Jesus, I can't think of a better way to start the new year than by receiving him today. Would you bow your head this morning? Your head bowed this morning. Let me ask you again, do you know Jesus? Has there been a time and a place or a season in your life where you recognize you're a sinner and that sin separates you from God and you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose the third day to pay for your sins and you receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? The answer is no or I'm not sure. Then right now, would you pray and accept Christ as your Lord and Savior? You can be saved right in your seat right now. Would you pray and confess your sins, express a desire to turn or repent for them, and receive Jesus Christ today? as your Lord and Savior. For those of you who do know Jesus, let me ask you a hard question. Does the evidence of your life indicate that you're living a spirit-controlled life? If the answer is no, then I don't want you to leave here feeling guilty. I want you to leave here empowered by the grace of God. And so if that's you, Would you just confess that? Would you express a desire to turn from that or repent? Say, Lord, I'm not trying to do this on my own anymore. It's not working. And would you by faith say, Lord, I can live this way because the Spirit is at work in me. And so, Lord, help me to live more faithfully, yielded and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I have all of him that I need. He just needs more of me in this new year. And so, Lord, help me to live that way. Father, we pray these things and ask these things. First and foremost, because you're able. And secondly, because we can. And so we pray and ask in the bold, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.